Hey, good morning, everybody. My name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, hey, before we get into today, uh, I just want to stop for a second and just say how ridiculously grateful I am. If you're late coming in, uh, we uh, announced earlier that this year we had a pretty crazy goal to raise $25,000, and you guys met and exceeded that. We raised $41,000 in one weekend. And... Um, I'm a G, so I don't want to start crying or shutting thug tears and nothing like that. But uh, hey, how you guys are so bought into seeing God do good things and see renewal happen in Harlem, it blows me away. Um, how you guys serve as volunteers, as leaders, how you give your time, your weeknights, and all of your mornings uh, for Renaissance, it is something that is amazingly special to me. And this is the greatest church in the world. All right, so if you're new here to Renaissance, major shout out uh, to everybody. I know it's not always easy to walk into a church for the first time, uh, but we're really glad that you guys are with us uh, today. Hey, so let's get into it. Uh, a couple years ago, uh, I read an article in the New York Times. The, the title is a little shocking, so I don't want this to offend you, but basically the title was Brunches for Jerks. Uh, <laughs> Hey, I'm not going to try to discourage anyone from getting your brunch after this. Trust me, I love uh, Eggs Benedict as much as the next man. So uh, basically, the author was, was saying how difficult it was for him as a parent, as a dad, to do brunch. Uh, by the time restaurants even open for brunch, you've been awake for like five hours, right? You've been wrestling with your kid in the apartment. Uh, if you do make it, you're sweaty, you're angry, everybody's in a bad mood. Uh, and while you're there, the entire time you're sitting down, you're just praying and praying and praying and praying that your kid doesn't act up. A few months ago, we took Jameson uh, with us. It was a Sunday, nice day. We said, you know what, let's do brunch. And we walked out, sun was shining, um, and Jameson wasn't having the greatest day. He had a fever, uh, so it made him a little, uh, gave him a little attitude, or oh, that's the excuse I'm going to use for today at least. Uh, and we sat down in a restaurant, and in New York City restaurants, you're all seated close to people, and we were sitting next to a young couple who probably didn't have kids. First five, ten minutes was pretty good. We were off to a good start, and then all of a sudden, uh, Sesame Street wasn't working anymore, and Jameson started going crazy, throwing stuff, uh, basically having convulsions. It was like a scene from Exorcism, and we were those parents that were in there with a screaming, terrible kid. And I'm like, yo, I paid $98 for these French toasts. I ain't going nowhere. I'm going to eat these joints. Y'all going to have to deal with what's going on right now. And we got those looks of judgment. And my favorite judgment about parenting is uh, judgment from people who don't have kids. That's my favorite. I love, I love the advice from non-parents on how to parent kids, yes. But I got to admit, I'm not, as, I'm not better than anybody else. Uh, I judge other people's kids all the time. Uh, we were coming back from San Diego last week, and Jameson uh, had done well on the flight. This kid was a champ. He was doing a great job. But the kid behind me, not so much. Uh, this little kid uh, was basically kicking my chair for like four hours, um, screaming, uh, and basically having a pretty miserable day. And every now and then, I would glance back to give his mother the, like, what are you going to do, look? I mean, you're gonna... <laughs> his knee is in the back of my chair. Like, you're, you're going to let that happen? Now, every time we see a well-behaved child, uh, we credit the parents. Man, you've done such a great job for him or her to be so nice, so pleasant, so respectful. They use please and thank you. Uh, and we assume that this child has been raised to a certain way. We don't ever think that the kid just so happened to figure it out on their own. 
The opposite is also true. When we see a kid that's just bad, we think to, them, we think to ourselves, let them parents give this kid to me for 10 minutes, right? And I'd straighten them out in 10 minutes flat. Uh, or we definitely think that these parents aren't doing their job. Certainly at no point during the flight did I expect the kid to just realize on his own, you know what? This gentleman in front of me probably had a hard week. <laughs> I'm going to stop kicking his chair now and let him relax and enjoy uh, the rest of his flight. Now, here's what we all believe. Uh, we don't expect children to raise themselves. We don't expect children to discipline themselves. We don't expect children to know better on their own. To a large degree, we put that on the parent. Now, it's interesting that all throughout the Bible, when the Bible talks about me and you, it gives us a designation uh, that is the highest designation in all of Scripture, better than being a student, better than being a follower, better than being a believer. It calls us children. In John 1, 12 through 13, it says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he, uh, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, how should we understand what it means to be in relationship to God as children, as a child? Because remember, we don't expect children to raise themselves. We don't expect children to discipline themselves. And we don't expect children to know better on their own. And if the Bible calls you a child of God, then this is basically what it's saying, that God has committed to raise you. God has committed to discipline you. God has committed to teach you ways that are better than what we could ever figure out on our own. And God will discipline us. He will teach us what it means to follow him. And if he didn't do that, he would be a pretty terrible parent. Now, it's interesting, as we're going to look at one of the scriptures for this morning, uh, Jesus gives us a line in this scripture that is the freshest breath of air for anyone who's trying to follow Jesus. Uh, because last week, uh, uh, Aswan kicked off our series on the Holy Spirit, and uh, he gave us some really great understanding of what the Holy Spirit is. Uh, now, let me break down a few misconceptions if you're new or if you missed last week. Now, a lot of us think that the Holy Spirit is this mystical, impersonal force that just comes in and touches somebody, right? If you grew up in church, you just saw somebody catch something. It's like a, somebody just tased them in the butt real quick. Boom. Ah. And, and we reduce the Holy Spirit to some force that just somehow just grabs somebody and like drags them around. And you're like, yo, I'm new to church, trust me, and I'm nervous even hearing about this whole Holy Spirit stuff. I don't want nobody running around here putting me in a headlock. I don't want none of that. Hey, but all throughout Scripture, particularly in the book of Acts, when you see the Bible refer to the Holy Spirit, it's not as this random force, but it's a person. It's as God, that God himself is dealing with us and leading us and guiding us. In the book of Acts, a man named Paul, who wrote a bunch of books in the New Testament and is a church planter, started a bunch of churches, uh, Paul talks about how the Holy Spirit warned him to not go into this one city or how the Holy Spirit led him in one way or another. And here's what uh, was going on underneath that. Paul, on his own, didn't know better. He couldn't, be, he couldn't guide himself. He couldn't lead himself. It was the Holy Spirit's job to guide him and to lead him because as children, we all have deficiencies. We all have inabilities to see what it is that we need to see. And God has committed to parent us. Some of it was, uh, we, we think the Holy Spirit is an emotional experience. Now, the Holy, the Holy Spirit could certainly involve emotions. But when we reduce the Holy Spirit to an emotional experience, we reduce God to a, a, a musical set. 
You guys have all done this. You walk in in church, and the music is going. You see who's on stage. See if your favorite singer is there. You're like, ah, oh, they ain't there. So I guess there'll be no, no Holy Spirit today. Or if they're singing a song that's not in your genre, and you're like, I don't even like Hillsong. I don't even know what they're singing. Uh, and you feel like you can't connect with God. Uh, and a lot of times, we reduce the Holy Spirit to an emotional experience. When your favorite singer is singing, they hit that one note, and you like, man, God was in that place. If Anthony Hamilton would have come here and sing the phone book, you would have that same emotional experience. Good, good music does something to us. Now, I'm not saying the Holy Spirit is devoid of emotions, but we cannot reduce God, the power and the presence of God, to just a mere uh, emotional experience. And the last one, this one I usually see in people who are really heady in, in their theological understanding. They've read a bunch of books. They can quote a bunch of theologians. And for them, the Holy Spirit is this optional thing that only deep and charismatic Christians use, right? It's like, yeah, the Holy Spirit is cool. You know, that's for those deep charismatics. I'm good. I got my Bible. Uh, I've memorized uh, a whole bunch of scripture, and, and I'm good on my own. To do that would be to reduce uh, the guidance and the leadership and the conviction of the Holy Spirit and say that basically I can do it on my own. Now, in John 14, the scripture for this morning, Jesus gives us a, a really great promise of what the Holy Spirit, who the Holy Spirit really is. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And here's the promise that Jesus gives every one of us in here who has placed your faith in Christ. I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. I will not leave you as an orphan. I will not leave you as someone that's vulnerable. I will not leave you as someone that is directionless. I will not leave you as someone that has to figure it out on their own, but I will come to you through the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus connects your ability to keep his commands in John 14 to him not leaving you as an orphan, meaning Jesus is saying it is the Holy Spirit's job, not your job, to raise you, that you're not left to yourself as an orphan. It is the Holy Spirit's job to direct you, to guide you, and it's not some mystical force or an emotional experience or something only for super Christians. And here's the crux of where we're going today. If and when you place your faith in Jesus, the moment you place your faith in Jesus, he didn't give you a rule book to follow. He gave you the Holy Spirit to lead you. When you place your faith in Christ, he didn't just say, hey, here's the map. Here's the maps that you're going to need. Here are these books. Here's this literature. He didn't do that. He gave us the Holy Spirit to guide us because he would not leave us as orphans. And he promises us. And in the same way that we don't expect children to raise themselves, to discipline themselves, to lead themselves, to guide themselves, to know better on their own, God doesn't expect that of us. But rather, he commits that he will not leave us as orphans. Now, if you're new here, this is a really good promise. If you're new to church, you're new to Christianity, this is really good for you because this means that you don't need to know where to start. You don't need to know a whole bunch of theology. You don't need to know uh, you, can't, you don't need to be able to memorize and recite uh, the book of Ezekiel. You don't need to do any of this stuff. It means that you simply have to receive Christ, and God will give us the Holy Spirit, as mystical as that might sound, to lead you, to guide you, to actually be a mature Christian. And if you're waiting for, for yourself to hit a certain point, then keep waiting, because you're not going to get there on your own any more than a two-year-old would learn manners on his own. It's just not going to happen. So Jesus promises that we won't be orphans, we won't be vulnerable, we won't be left to ourselves to make our own decisions, we won't be left to ourselves to guide ourselves. God will discipline us and God will raise us. 
Now, despite the fact that Jesus promises us this thing that is so amazing, uh, most of us still tend to think of God as an absentee father. And uh, most of us, and this is Jordan Rice included, and here's why I mean that. Most of us tend to think that either God is uh, waiting for us to hit a certain knowledge point, waiting for us to hit a certain point of our own personal maturity before God will love and accept us. And once you do this stuff, once you've had a couple good months in a row, then God will love and accept you. Or on the flip side, uh, we think that God is an absentee father in the sense that, we know, you know what, God doesn't care what we do. He's kind of with his head down, scrolling through Instagram, not paying attention to anything that's going on in our lives because he just loves us and he's not really paying uh, attention to anything that's going on. He's not helping us out. He's not leading us. He's not guiding us. He's not getting in our face about stuff. He's just kind of there with this random version of love that we think he has for us. Now, I heard a talk this past weekend by one of my favorite preachers, uh, Tim Keller, and he gave a a couple of really good examples of what a lot of people believe is Christianity, which in fact is not Christianity at all. Most of what people hate about Christianity isn't even Christianity. Now, here's the first way that a lot of us believe. Uh, We believe, and this is incorrect, this is not the gospel, a lot of us believe that faith plus our good behavior equals being right with God. But if I have faith and then I attack on some good behavior, I show God I'm really serious, I show God I really mean it, and when I go to church, I lift both hands, I don't care who sees me, uh, right? Even when my shoulders are tired, I keep my hands up, right? <laughs> if I do all of these things, then God will accept me. Now, here's why this is so dangerous. In theological circles, they call this moralism, and especially if you're new to church and you're thinking, hey, I'm not even really a Christian person like that, I don't get down with that, uh, you don't have to be religious to be a moralist. Here's why. Now, the more Christian, conservative, moralists tend to be worried about personal ethics. Don't have sex with that person. Don't get drunk. Don't push somebody down the stairs on the subway platform. Don't do these personal things that are wrong, and then God will accept you. People who are new to church or aren't really that religious tend to land in the camp of social ethics, as long as I'm woke. As long as I, you know, I tweet real outrageous things after every police shooting, as long as I am deeply invested in the marginalized and the poor and I'm sacrificial, then God will accept me. Now, as much as you both would hate to be lumped in the same category, it's basically two sides of the same coin. And it's this, God cares about this thing, whatever that thing is, and if I do a good job at it, then God will accept me. And that is not the gospel message. And if we believe that, we're saying that God has left us as orphans to raise ourselves. And once we have done a good enough job, then God will accept us. That is the antithesis. That is the opposite of the gospel message. God has not left you as orphans to figure it out by yourself. God has not left you to, to reach a certain point of maturity before he will smile at you and accept you. As a matter of fact, in Philippians 2 and 13, one of the most amazing, shocking scriptures in all of the Bible, it says it like this. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. It is God that's working in you to even desire to do good things. That desire you have to do something good, Scripture says that is God working inside of you to do that. That in the same way that it's not within that three-year-old's mind, it's not within that three-year-old's capability to stop kicking my chair on his own, to realize it on his own, he has to be taught to do that. This is what Bible, the scripture is telling us. It is God that is working in you. Before you have ever had the desire or the will to do or you ever did anything good, God first was always previous in that working inside of you to bring that desire in you in the first place. God has not left you as an orphan to figure it out yourself, to raise yourself, to direct yourself. But God is working inside of us. Every good desire we have, 
It comes from the Holy Spirit's work in us to, be, to make us mature. And that's why in Ephesians 2, a uh, scripture we quote here quite often, it says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. This is not of your own doing. All the good stuff you do, all of the accolades you've received, this is not of your own doing. The relationship you have with God, this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. And if you and I fall into the dangerous trap and believe that God's love, God's love for us is reserved for us after we've hit a certain point of achievement and spiritual maturity, then you are nullifying and negating the deep, the reckless, the amazing love of God that has been poured out for us in Christ. A lot of us um, need the reminders that when we have placed our faith in Christ, God didn't give us a rule book to follow. Dead people don't need rules. Dead people don't need maps. We need to be made alive. That's what God has done for us when we placed our faith in him. Now, my son just turned two on Friday, and uh, shout out to that. Yes, and um, as soon as he, on his birthday, my wife and I, we were thinking a ton about uh, just the last two years and how much he's grown and all this other stuff. And I'll never forget the night we took him home from the hospital, or the night, we, the night he was born, uh, and I was in an Uber on my way back uptown to try to get three hours of sleep. And uh, the amount of love that my heart was experiencing for this little boy who had accomplished absolutely nothing. He had done nothing. <laughs> nothing in, in his entire life. And listen, there is not, there is, there is, Nothing in this world that I love more than him. And he has accomplished absolutely nothing to attain my love. Because I love him as his dad, I will raise him. I will discipline him. I will nurture him. I'll teach him to be a Jets fan. I will do all of these things <laughs> that really matter in life. But if he ever believes that his getting A's or making the basketball team or doing anything, uh, getting the job at Google one day, if he thinks that any of that stuff is the reason that I love him as a dad, then he has missed the point completely. My wife and I got him an email address, and um, we email him stuff. You got to reserve Gmail. This stuff, those, those stuff fly off the, uh, those names are gone, man. So we got him an email address, and we've been emailing him um, just stuff that he does. And, hey, this is the day you had to blow out a diaper, take some pictures for, for, for bribery later. Um, but mostly the first thing I can think to email him was how much I loved him. Listen, he hadn't accomplished anything. He hadn't done anything. But the love that I had for him was full. It was complete. There was nothing he could have done to add to that. And to be a child of God means that the love of the Father is poured out on you, and nothing you can do will add or subtract to that. Will God correct you? Of course he will. Will God lead you away from some stuff? Of course he will. But it doesn't mean that anything you have ever done can ever add to that. In Ephesians 1 and 4, it says, it kind of is a nail in the coffin. It says, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Before the creation of the world, God chose you in him to be holy and blameless in his sight. Before this world was formed, God had already destined his love to be on us. Now, some of you guys are getting really anxious in your seats. You're like, that just sounds too easy. That just sounds too good to be true. Uh, there's another side to this coin, which is also not the gospel, which is uh, something that a lot of theologians call relativism. And it's basically this, faith equals justification, and it doesn't matter what I do. 
God just loves me. God is just rocking with me. He just loves me. His heart is full for me. And God isn't really paying attention to what I'm doing. He is just good with me. And this is why this is really, really dangerous. Because real love will never leave you alone when you're doing wrong. If all your friends are just yesing you to death, and when you come home and, you know, you're, you're bragging about, you know, blame it on the a- 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 alcohol, and you've made another, <laughs> another mess of your life, and your friends are laughing at you as you're making a mess of your life, and you're going down a terrible direction, those are not your friends. They do not love you. A real friend will get in your face when you're going in the wrong direction. Someone who really loves you will correct you when you need correction. They'll say uncomfortable truths to you, to your face, to get you to turn around and go in the, wrong, to go in the right direction. And to say that faith equals justification and God doesn't care what we do nullifies God as being a good parent. What kind of parent would just let their kids go in the wrong direction and just let them continue going in that direction without saying anything, without correcting them? Growing up, uh, when I was in high school, I was a senior, and uh, every now and then my parents let me drive the car to school. It was good. Uh, And every now and then, I'm a a great student, but uh, I would cut school for the day. We would, uh, my friends would beat me. This is when I had beepers, right? You hold the beeper up in the air. You had a quarter full of pockets. Um, and we would have this whole beeping thing going on, and we would arrange where we would meet each other. Um, and one time, I was cutting school. We, rout, we rallied up the crew. Uh, it was a good day. Uh, we were driving around. Uh, we were on our way to the highway to do something, bumping Jay-Z, Life and, Car- Life and Times with S. Carter, Volume 3. And then I saw something that put the fear of God in me. As we're driving, windows down, leaning, dancing, I saw my dad driving in the other direction. <laughs> For a second, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to drive to Canada. I'm just going to keep going <laughs> and just go. I'm a faster driver than he is. Uh, now, my dad will drive from here to North Carolina in the right lane the entire time. 55 miles an hour, 10 and 2. But that morning, this dude busted a U-turn in the middle of the street. <laughs> got right behind me and was honking his horn and flashing his lights and basically pulled me over. Um, (laughs) Now, what kind of dad would he have been to see me driving, cutting school, and to say, oh, I love that boy so much. I'm just going to let him just do it. I hope he has a good time. (laughs) He would be a, a, a terrible, terrible, terrible father to do that. And here's the truth about the gospel. We are saved by grace alone but not a grace that leaves us alone. Absolutely, we are saved by grace and grace alone. There's nothing you did to deserve it. What could we have done to deserve God's grace? Give me a week in your life. Go go through your calendar. Tell me a week where where you've done well enough to deserve it. A month. None of us can do that. It's grace and grace alone, but it's not a grace that leaves us alone. It's not a grace that gives us a blank check to do whatever, but real love, real grace confronts us whenever we need confronting. Real grace convicts us whenever we need convicting. And in in the scripture of Ephesians 2, we see uh, what a picture of the gospel really is. In Ephesians 2 and 10, it says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has prepared good things for you and me to do. God has prepared good things for us to do. Uh, But none of these good things, none of these good things will make you a child of God. Simultaneously, being a child of God means that God will lead us and direct us towards the good works that God has prepared for us to do. So here we see the real gospel, which is faith equals justification, 
which leads us to good works. Faith equals justification, which will lead us to good behavior, to repentance, to conviction, to all of the things that God wants to accomplish in our lives. And in the same way that we would never expect the kids to just to raise themselves, discipline themselves, or know the best way on their own, listen, to place our faith in God, to be parented by God means that God will lead us, and God will direct us, and God will challenge us and change us. Now, we are made right simply by placing our faith in him, and all of the good stuff we do for the next hundred years will not uh, increase that. Now, the Holy Spirit is how God leads us to good works. Now, how does God lead us to actually do good things? Uh, That answer is the Holy Spirit. Maybe you can close those doors in the back. Uh, Listen to what Jesus says in in John 16. Uh, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, the Holy Spirit's job is to parent us, and uh, he has not left us as orphans to raise ourselves. And sometimes the Holy Spirit sees us driving in the wrong direction, cutting school, and the Holy Spirit will get behind us, flash his lights, honk the horn, and let us know that we need to turn around and go back to school. That's what's called conviction in theological circles. Now, listen, I didn't stop being my dad's son because I was cutting school, but because he was a good dad, he stepped in to correct me. God would not be a good parent for you if he'd never convicted you or tried to alter you from going in the wrong direction. So Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin. And, hey, that word conviction is a a fancy-schmancy word uh, in Greek called elegko. Now, I told everybody that as long as I still have student loans, right, I still got to use my Greek, right? So for the next 1,300 years or so, as long as I'm still paying Navient, right, I can't even slander Sally Mae anymore because they sold my loans off to another company. But hey, Allegco basically means to to prosecute, to cross-examine. A few years ago, uh, many years ago now, actually, Uh, I was in law school, and we did like a mock trial where a friend asked me to be a witness for them. And it's a pretty uncomfortable thing to be cross-examined. And this was a makeup case, and I was still getting mad at the other person, like, yeah, they're going hard for no reason. Um, And it was a very uncomfortable feeling to be cross-examined. Here's basically what Scripture is saying about conviction, that the Holy Spirit raises a lot of questions, and it paints us into a corner to where we have to say one thing or another. And it's the Holy Spirit's job to prosecute us in sorts because God loves us to convict us and to correct us. Now, sometimes this feels a little bit uh, more harsh or more rough than we might, might want to be handled. But in, in any circumstance, whether it's a friendship or a parent relationship, uh, whenever you see somebody going in the wrong direction, if you really love them, you will step in and do whatever is necessary to get them going in the right direction. Everybody seen those movies where it's like two friends running and one person just drops like, I can't go further. I can't go. And the other friend picks him up, slaps him in the face, like, get up. (laughs) We getting out of here. Now, sometimes the Holy Spirit has to shake us a little bit, and that's called conviction. Uh, He has to uh, come in our lives and show us a mirror and and show us that we're going in the wrong direction. 
Now, convicting uh, means that sometimes you feel yourself bombarded with questions. And this is really cool for people who are new to church and you're kind of your first time back in a long time. And before, you were kind of just happy-go-lucky. You never really thought about stuff too much. You're like, hey, people got church. They got Jesus. That's good for them. I'm going to do me over here. But all of a sudden, you find yourself being bothered by stuff. You got questions now. Well, if this is true, then what about this? And if that's true, then what about this? And before you know it, you're asking more and more and more questions, and you're no longer indifferent. You know what that might be? That might be the Holy Spirit's conviction that is now raising this to the surface of your life. For those of us who are Christians, uh, the Holy Spirit makes it plain that we are seen, that what we're doing is visible to God. Uh, When I first became a Christian, one of the first things I read that just blew the doors off my life was Hebrews 4 and 12, and it says, everything we do will be laid bare before the eyes of whom we must give account. And I read that scripture, and it hit me like a ton of bricks. I knew that I wasn't low, that God saw everything that was going on in my life. Now, conviction, when I was driving... In cutting school that day, conviction basically was uh, taking it from a theory that I knew I was wrong to cut school to I'm, I'm wrong and my dad sees me. That's what conviction is. Now, sometimes we don't experience conviction uh, because we're running away. Uh, sometimes we don't experience conviction because uh, we've hardened ourselves to ever even having a conversation uh, about it. Or sometimes we don't experience conviction because we're, we don't really have a well to draw from in terms of Scripture that would actually be able to be applied to our lives. In Genesis 1, when you see the first uh, appearance of the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, you see that it says, in the beginning, um, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, here's what it is. When God spoke... The Spirit applied it. The Holy Spirit's job is to apply what God has spoken. And that's one reason we keep on beating that drum. Do your CBR, do your CBR, do your CBR, because your community Bible reading, because we want you to have a repository, something to draw from, a well to draw from that can be applied to your lives, that can be applied to your heart. And others of us, uh, today might be that day you've never actually taken that, that leap of faith. You've never actually committed your life to Jesus, to say, Jesus, I want you to be the Lord and Savior of my life. And there's no magic dance that you have to do to get that. All you simply have to do is say, Jesus, I know I can't do it on my own, and I want you to lead me. I want you to guide me. I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. I want you to convict me. I want you to direct me. I want you to raise me. That's all you have to do. Now, the Holy Spirit doesn't just convict us of sin. That would be pretty depressing if that's all he did. Um, The Holy Spirit also convicts us, it says in verse 10, of righteousness, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. And what does that mean? Concerning, how does the Holy Spirit convict us of righteousness? And this is a really cool thing, if you, if you think about it. Uh, the Holy Spirit takes the truths of Scripture and applies them to our hearts, so that when we talk about uh, what is required for us to be right with God, the Holy Spirit shows us that that was satisfied with Jesus. Uh, in, anybody ever in here from the DMV, uh, from Washington, D.C., Right? Not the DMV, the car, a place where you register your car. Um, When you're driving into D.C., if you're taking 395, you'll see the Washington Monument, and it's all lit up, and it's gorgeous, and it's beautiful. But I promise you there's one thing that you never noticed. You never noticed the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars around the Washington Monument. You never notice all of the lights that are there to light up the Washington Monument. All you see is the Washington Monument. Now, the Holy Spirit is often referred to as the shy member of the Trinity uh, because what he does is he, pulls, is he illuminates Christ. 
He shows us a very clear picture of who Christ is, and it takes it from just mere head knowledge, something you've heard, to actually a heart application that I can actually trust the entirety of my life to Jesus. And what he has done is sufficient. And it's not you reading a, a more deep book uh, that will get it there, but it's the Holy Spirit that will guide us and will lead us to the point to where we can trust in God for our righteousness. And the last thing the Holy Spirit does, uh, it says in verse 11, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. This is a dope spot. If you've placed your faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit will work inside of you to let you know about the finality of God's verdict over your life. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit will work inside of you to let you know the finality of what God has done in our lives. Satan's tactics is to be a, or to be an accuser, to show you all the things that you didn't do, to show you all the things that you, all the ways that you don't measure up. And what the Holy Spirit does in our lives is magnifies what Jesus has done and shows us the finality of it. Because you want to know why? It's not easy for us to ever accept or to receive grace. It's not easy at all. Um, One of the best descriptions of us is not that you were born into a family, but rather that we were adopted in. In Romans 8 and 15, it says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, as children, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. In other words, the best way for us to think about our relationship with God is that you and I were orphans and we were adopted by God. And for someone that spent time in an orphanage, the promises of a home with parents don't come naturally. They're not something that you automatically just get. I have a friend, uh, she was a part of this church, she moved away. Uh, she adopted a, a, a son from an orphanage in uh, South Africa. And she talks about uh, the first couple of weeks and months of him being at home and out of the orphanage. And as soon as they got there, there was a big party for him. Uh, all of the papers had been signed. It was signed, sealed, delivered. He would never be more of her son than he was at that very specific moment. And they got him all these gifts in his book bag. And she went in the room to find where his stuff was. And he had taken it all and hidden it under the bed. He was so used to being in an orphanage where he had to fend for himself and hide anything that was good so that nobody else would take it. And she had to go to him over and over again, hey, this is yours. This is your house. This is your bag. These are your toys. There's nobody else that lives here. It's just me and it's just you. Now, here's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit uh, is the way by which we cry, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit teaches us that we are no longer orphans, but we have been adopted into God's family. And over and over again, the Holy Spirit reminds us, this is your, this is your Savior. He has died for your sins. All of the sins have been paid for. You don't have to worry. You don't have to be anxious. What God has done in your life is final. Last thing that you see in verse 16 of chapter 14, where Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit. He says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Now, this was really cool when I was talking to my friend about uh, why Jesus would promise forever with the Holy Spirit. Uh, when she brought her son home, uh, the people at the orphanage kept on telling her, hey, make sure you let him know that you are going to be his parent forever. Not as long as he behaves well, not as long as he's in school, not until he's 12. Uh, You are going to be his parent forever. And here's what Jesus promises us in this scripture, that the Holy Spirit will be with us forever because he knows you and I are quick to doubt. We're quick to fear. We're quick to anxiety that God would leave us after a bad week, a bad month, a bad year. We're quick that when we don't see God right in front of us to doubt whether God is with us and whether God is for us. But he promises us the Holy Spirit 
forever, to be with us forever, to raise us forever, to live with us forever, because God is a good parent. And it's never grace alone that would leave us alone. It's not real grace that would just leave us to our own devices for any reason at all. Now, we're at a point in our service that we do often here, and it's called communion. And communion is one of the best ways that you and I can experience the forever and the reminder of the forever type of love, uh, which is at God's table. Now, here's how, what communion is for those of us in here who are new. Uh, 2,000 years ago, Jesus gathered his closest friends, and he took some bread. He says, hey, this is my body, which is broken for you. He took some wine. He says, this is my blood, which is poured out in the remission, in the forgiveness, in the cleansing of sins. And we do this as a reminder to what Jesus has promised us, that he will never leave us, he will never forsake us, that lo, he will be with us to the very end of the age. And when we come to the table, we are receiving the Christ who has given us the ultimate commitment that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for the ungodly. Now, if Jesus would die for us, what else in our lives do we have to worry about? Now, if you are new to church or you have not placed your faith in Christ, uh, we ask that when everybody else comes to receive communion, we ask that you stay in your seats. We don't want you just getting up just because everybody else is taking communion. Uh, but we want, while everybody else is receiving communion, we want you to receive Christ. So we would invite you to pray uh, for God to come into your life, for God to come into your heart uh, at, at this time. But for everyone else who has placed your faith in Jesus, uh, when you come to the table, come to the table of what Jesus has promised to be with you forever. He has not left you as an orphan. He will be with us. Heavenly Father, uh, I am grateful for uh, how you have pronounced us to be good with you, and that's something we could have never done on our own, and you've given us a promise that you would never leave us or forsake us, and you've given us the Holy Spirit, not just a rule book to follow, but a Holy Spirit to live inside of us. Lord, would you give us courage to trust you? Would you give us courage to yield to whatever way you're trying to convict us? Would you give us courage to step out in faith and follow you wherever you're leading us? We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.